Your plan is perfect. We have truly been amazed uh, just walking through these pages and seeing what your son went through for us. And we are grateful. And we ask that you'd continue to teach us and move both our hearts and our minds and our wills towards you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Mark chapter 15. We're going to look at verses 21 through 32, page 580 in the Bibles that we give away. So if you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. Someone will bring you one. It's our gift to you. And we're going through the gospel of Mark verse by verse. We've been going over the last several weeks looking at the last week of Jesus' life. The gospel of Mark, actually one-third of the gospel covers that, basically that last week of Jesus' life focusing on it because that's why he came. He came to, to suffer and to die for us. And uh, so we've been looking at this, and we're at this point here uh, titled the Via Dolorosa, which is the way of suffering. And uh, really that on the way, it represents the Jesus trek on the way to be crucified as well as his crucifixion, but also his suffering, the suffering that he provided so that we could have salvation. So I thought it'd be great if we watched a little video clip of what I don't mean by suffering, okay? Let's watch it. Road trip. After seven hours in a car, we'll be besties by the time we get there. It was supposed to be a simple road trip. What's wrong? Are you hurt? No, Lars! <laughs> Don't you quit on me! Don't you give up! Don't give up! Don't give up! Don't you die! Don't you die! Why? kids will face their worst nightmare, figuring out how to survive offline. Hashtag worst day ever. To make it, they'll have to do the impossible, communicate with the person in front of them. How are you feeling? Face to face. No devices. Like this or this? Okay. Okay, good. We're getting somewhere. Look at that. Three likes. We're with you. Is this ivy poisonous? I don't know. Does this look bad? Hmm, I don't know. Are these friendly? Guys, I, I don't know anything. I just look stuff up on my phone. guys, I heard that if you stab your phone battery with a stick, it'll spark. Maybe we should try it. Oh, no, not my phone. 
It's not even working, Tegan. This is a matter of life or death. <laughs> oh, it is. Because if anyone tries to stab my phone, I'll do worse than kill him. I'll unfriend them. Whoa, whoa, No signal, no hope. <gasps> a tweet! Oh, right. It's an actual bird. Stupid birds. Oh, that's not what I mean by suffering, okay? Jesus went through so much more. Uh, the Via Dolorosa means the way of suffering, uh, referring to the path Jesus took to the cross. It also refers to his suffering during the horrible day we call Good Friday. The via, the way of Jesus' suffering, led us to the way of salvation. The events of this day point to God's grand plan of salvation, predicted hundreds of years before the events. No other religion has anything in comparison to this. Let's look at our passage and read Mark chapter 15. They led him out to crucify him. Verse 21. They forced a man coming in from the country who was passing by to carry Jesus' cross. He was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Then they crucified him and divided his clothes, casting lots for them to decide what each would get. Now it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge written against him was the king of the Jews. They crucified two criminals with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, ha, the one who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself by coming down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests with the scribes were mocking him among themselves and saying, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him taunted him. So here we see the suffering of Jesus and his crucifixion. So let's look at these events portraying Jesus' suffering, which fulfills Psalm 22. We're going to look at Psalm 22 in just a moment and how these events led to our redemption. I want you to notice the Savior's love for us in what he was willing to endure for us. And notice also that it was all predicted when we look at Psalm 22, a part of the plan of God from the beginning revealing that it is true. Because if God predicted it hundreds of years ahead of time, that's the evidence that we know this is real. And then notice this Via Dolorosa calls us to follow on his path, not ours. Verses 21 through 23, we see 
being on the way to the cross. And as we look through this, please picture the sights and sounds and smells of this infamous day, infamous day. Try to put yourself back in that time period and imagine the best we can what Jesus was suffering, what he was going through for us. As he's going along, obviously Jesus couldn't handle the cross anymore. And so we see in verses 21 through 23, we see in verse 21 that Simon was forced to to carry Jesus' cross. Specifically says Simon of Cyrene from North Africa is where he came from. But here we see the Via Dolorosa in Jerusalem. When we go to Israel, we're gonna be going again in uh, May of 2022, so a year from this May. Okay. Uh, we'll, we'll walk these streets, w- the streets called the Via Dolorosa, where Jesus, and m- much of it, uh, the cobblestone uh, road, etc., is very much like it, it was way back 2,000 years ago. And we'll be able to see that and walk and, and, uh, and sense what it must have been like uh, in this regard. But Jesus clearly was too weak to carry the cross any further. As we saw from the beating that he experienced, uh, the whipping and so forth, that some people even died from that scourging. Here we see he's too weak, and so uh, Simon is forced to carry the cross for him. But interestingly, if you notice in the passage, it mentions also his two sons. So we have Simon of Cyrene, and then it mentions his two sons, Alexander and Rufus. And I think that's very important for us to recognize, especially Rufus, because Rufus was my favorite dog of all time. Okay. Um, poor Rufus, he died, but uh, love that dog. But, uh, but I'm just kidding. But, but Rufus especially is also even mentioned in Romans chapter 16 in the greetings that Paul gives. So it's very clear the reason why these are mentioned by name is they were a part of the family. They were a part of the church from the very beginning. And, uh, and what we see here really is eyewitness testimony. It's the little things like this that reveal the authenticity of the account in its early attestation because the Gospel of Mark, written probably around 55 AD, but it reflects eyewitness testimony that goes right back to the actual event, 30 AD. And so we know this stuff really did happen. So it's fascinating to see this. But then we go on as we're walking through the passage, and, and it says that they, brought, they came to the place called Golgotha. Many of our songs we sing of Calvary, right? Uh, Calvary is actually not in the Bible, but it's the Latin translation of Golgotha. So Golgotha is the word that we see in the Bible, but we don't have any songs that I know of that sing of Golgotha. I guess maybe it's doesn't roll off the tongue as easy as Calvary, perhaps. So, so they went with the, with the Latin word, uh, Calvaria, is what, it's, is what it is. But, uh, but here we see Golgotha literally means the place of the skull. Uh, there are actually two sites where uh, people think Jesus was crucified. One is the traditional site, and uh, most scholars 
lean towards the traditional site. And uh, probably the, the reasoning being because it's hard to imagine that God's, the, the, the faithful followers of Christ would forget where Jesus was crucified. So it makes sense that they would know where, where it is in the traditional site. But when you go to the traditional site, it's just, they actually built a church over on top of it. And, and it's filled with all kinds of incense and gaudy things and religious accoutrements that, uh, that obviously weren't there. So when you go there, you kind of just feel like, is this really you know, what it was like? And, you know. But there's another place uh, called Gordon's Calvary. It's kind of fascinating uh, because this place, uh, some others believe that this was the actual site of the crucifixion of Jesus because Gordon's Cal- or, or Golgotha means place of the skull. I have a picture here. Let's see. Uh, uh, here is where it is. It kind of you can see how it kind of looks like a skull. We have early pictures, black and white pictures, dating many many years before this. That even more looks like a, a skull, but it's the wear wearing of the mountain is, or hill is, has uh, kind of taken that away. But it's kind of fascinating that you know is this. And this was known for looking like a skull throughout the centuries. So is this the actual place? So it would have been on top of this hill where uh, he was crucified. Uh, and, and in fact, we have uh, uh, right down alongside the hillside there, there is this first century tomb that looks very much like you know, you know, the tombs of that time period. And when you, we, we go to both sites, actually, when we go to Israel. But when you go to this site, you go inside and it just looks like, you know, here's what it really looked like. Here's what it was like when Jesus was put in the tomb. Uh, and, and in fact, we uh, have the Lord's Supper at this site and pray. It's just a wonderful experience. I like this one better, but, you know, uh, I suppose we'll find out which one was the actual site. Uh, but it's nice to go to both because you see the traditional site, but then you see this, which is probably much more realistic of what it was like at the time. And, uh, and so we see this place, Golgotha, the place of the skull. Once again, why was it called the place of the skull? Uh, if it's the traditional site, it's just because that's the place of death. That's where people die. There was a, uh, a graveyard nearby, etc. But here we see uh, he's crucified, and then he's offered uh, some drugged wine. Some people, as we read it, we might get the impression that, you know, hey, this is mean. Another, another way of just, you know, jabbing at Jesus and, and trying to make him suffer. But others, in fact, most scholars think this was probably an act of kindness that, uh, to be, have this drugged wine, you kind of are not in your full senses and experiencing the full pain. But Jesus turns it down. He turns it down because he's going to go through and drink the full cup of his father's wrath while on the cross. Just as he promised and committed to in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so we see this first part, and then in verses 24 through 28, we see the crucifixion. Uh, I want you to try to feel again what Christ experienced, the best that you can, as we walk through this. And it says, uh, then they crucified him and divided his clothes, 
casting lots for them to decide what each would get. Now, it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge written against him was the king of the Jews. They crucified two criminals with him, one on his right and one on his left. And so we see the crucifixion. But in verses 24 and 25, we see prophecy fulfilled. This is where Psalm 22 comes in hand. In Psalm 22, uh, we could read through the whole psalm, but it's fascinating how in several parts it actually predicts what Christ would go through. But it's important for us to, to have a little understanding of Psalm 22. In Psalm 22, David is writing, and he probably was writing about his own experience at first, okay? So he's writing this in poetic form, but writing about his own experience. But even the ancient Jews and scholars today all agree that he's saying more than what actually happened to him back in those days. Now, David is writing around 1,000 B.C., so 1,000 years before the time of Christ. And when you look at the events, we know that much of this David didn't experience, so, and, and in a lot of David's writings, what uh, even the ancient Jews discovered was that they were being more, uh, there was a greater fulfillment in the ultimate son of David, the king of kings that would reign forever. And so they call these messianic psalms, psalms of the Messiah to come. And so predicting a thousand years before the time what would take place. Uh, let's look at just a few of the verses here in Psalm 22. It starts out in verse one where it says, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? Now Jesus, in the very next passage in Mark, which we'll cover another time, he actually cries out this cry when he was experiencing the wrath of God, the forsakenness of the Father, the worst of all of the suffering that he experienced. And so we see he's crying out. We see this, how it begins here. And, and then, uh, then we see uh, in verse 7, everyone who sees me mocks me. There's the scoffers. They sneer and shake their heads. He relies on the Lord. Let him save him. Let the Lord rescue him since he takes pleasure in him. And we'll cover that in just a moment. So we see that clearly a fulfillment. Skip down and look at verse 14. I am poured out like water and all my bones are disjointed. My heart is like wax melting within me. My strength is dried up like baked Play. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You put me into the dust of death. Here we see a description of what does take place in crucifixion. When they're hanging, their bones are uh, disjointed, etc. Their heart begins to pound because of all the pressure and the thirst. In fact, one of the things that he says on the cross is, I thirst. The thirst that comes over them in the hot sun as they're just baking uh, in the in this, at this time. He goes on, for dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers has closed in on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. They pierced my hands and my feet. What was David talking about? 
We know he was talking about the crucifixion. But David is speaking a thousand years before this, hundreds of years before crucifixion was even invented. How did he know? Specifically about being pierced in hands and feet. In Isaiah 53, he says he was pierced and crushed, speaking of a violent death. All predicted before crucifixion was even invented, but down to the very detail. They pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. People look and stare at me. They divided my garments among themselves, and they cast lots for my clothing. You see there, there's our passage where the guards are doing that. In fact, uh, if we skip down, it's quite fascinating Okay, so he's clearly crucified, he's killed. In Isaiah 53, another prediction of all of this, he, we, he's, he's dead, he's killed, he's left lifeless. And then at the end of Isaiah 53, just like at the end of this psalm, we find him alive again. And here he says in verse 31, they will come and declare his righteousness to a people yet to be born, they will declare what he has done. Now, what's fascinating about that last phrase, what he has done, in the Hebrew, it does sound a lot like it is finished. So we see this incredible prediction ahead of time, revealing to us that God was in charge. This is all God's plan. It's the only way human beings can be saved. All other religions are false. None of them have anything like this in fulfillment, but the horror of it. Back to our passage in Mark, the horror of what Jesus went through. Crucifixion was literally excruciating. The word excruciating comes from the word crucifixion. And because of this, many are embarrassed today about just all that Jesus went through, the, this, uh, not just the suffering, but Uh, more so the humiliation. They're embarrassed to talk about it. And we have churches that speak of how, you know, all his death on the cross didn't pay for our penalty and they change things around. But we also, in Islam, in Islam, they reject it. They deny that he was crucified. The Quran specifically says that he wasn't crucified, but Allah just made it appear like he was. He actually made someone else to look like Jesus, and that guy was crucified. That's what the Koran teaches. You gotta think, Allah is a deceiver? He deceived everybody? Why? And it's because Muhammad was embarrassed by this. But he's wrong. Jesus was crucified. He did go through this for us, and we do not need to be embarrassed. I want to read from Peter Moore's book, Disarming the Secular Gods. Gives a wonderful illustration. He says a young girl had grown up with a mother whose hands were badly scarred. For years, she was content to simply accept the fact that her mother's hands were different from all the other mommy's smooth hands. But as she grew older, this difference became a source of embarrassment. Still, she said nothing. But she began to feel great shame at the ugliness of those scarred hands. At the age of eight, she could finally stand it no longer, and out came the question, 
Mommy, why do you have such ugly hands when all the other mothers have smooth hands? There it was. It was said. The young girl felt relief by just asking the question that had been in her mind so long. Her mother quietly sat her down and told her this story. When you were a little child, still sleeping in a crib, we had a sudden fire in the house. And when I went into your room, the flames were already around the crib. I grabbed you and wrapped you in a blanket, but the flames had already reached the outside of the blanket, and my hands, as you can see, were terribly burned. So, darling, this is why my hands are scarred and not lovely and smooth as other mothers are. There was a pause, and then a look of recognition came over the girl's face. She reached down and picked up her mother's hands in hers and held them tightly to her face. Oh, mommy, mommy, I just love these hands. Perhaps that's why Christians wear crosses. It's a form of execution. It's a form of torture. But we're not ashamed that our Savior was crucified for us. But the callous guards, they're casting lots to see which piece of clothing they can get out of this whole ordeal. Their callousness really reflected what most were like in Roman society of that time. We know that with the gladiators and all the other things that went on in Rome. The callousness is amazing. But here's the question. Are we getting callous as a society? We allow the slaughter of millions of babies, making it legal right up to the time of birth. Are we getting callous as a society? We don't care about the elderly. There's been some major things in the news lately of, of several governors who, uh, with their practices, they actually were putting elderly who had COVID into the nursing homes and thousands were killed because of it. Was it out of callousness? Disregard for the elderly? Is this what we've become as a people? Are we becoming like this? You see, depopulation is actually the plan of globalism. That is the plan of the world's system. They want to depopulate the world because too many people using too much energy, et cetera, et cetera. But it's quite fascinating. The depopulators never take themselves out of the equation. It's sad. But we don't have to be like that, do we? We reach out and we love everyone. Now here, back in our passage, he gives the time frame. He says that... It was around 9 o'clock in the morning. And we know from the other time indicators that he was on the cross for approximately six hours. So for six hours, one Friday, he actually satisfied an eternity of hell. And once again, many people are wondering how in the world could one man, by even going through such 
excruciating things, how could that pay for the penalties of all the sins of all the world, especially considering that the penalty for sin is hell, eternal hell? How could one man do this? And the fact is, it's because of who he is. Jesus is both God and man. The second person of the Trinity took on a second nature, that of humanity, born of the Virgin Mary. And so both, he's both God and man and so has infinite worth. And so his death was of infinite value to be able to pay those six hours at once Friday and to go through what he went through in eternity of hell those six hours. Amazing. All we can say is praise you, Lord, that he was willing to do this and accomplished our forgiveness. The official crime was insurrection. On the sign it said, King of the Jews. Insurrection. Uh, interestingly, remember, that's what Barabbas actually did. Barabbas, he uh, was trying to overthrow Rome, and he was caught. He was released, didn't have to pay his penalty. Jesus wasn't an insurrectionist, but yet that was his crime and that was his death. Says, king of the Jews. What's fascinating is Jesus is the king of the Jews. He is the king of the Jews. We see this in the scriptures once again in the prophecies of old that predict this. In Isaiah chapter 11, verses one through nine, we see how this child would be born, but somehow the government would be on his shoulders and that he would reign and be ruled with a rod of iron and then bring total peace and justice to the world to the point where everything is completely changed where even the lion lies down with the lamb. There's no harm anymore on the planet. What a day. Now, we've been seeing that this is through his first and his second coming. Both are essential to bring about the full salvation. And we see this, but the first coming was to die so that our sins could be forgiven. And the second coming is to wipe out all evil. And in between those two, we share the gospel. We help as many people as possible come in. He is the king of the Jews. I want you to look at Revelation chapter 19, last book of the Bible, verses 11 through 16. In Revelation 19, we see at the very end of time the second coming of Jesus Christ, this incredible description. It says, Then I saw heaven open, and there was a white horse, its rider is called Faithful and True, and with justice he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God, John 1.1. 1, 1. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses, wearing pure white linen, a sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. 
He will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God, the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Here is our Savior coming as mighty king. And if you go on to the rest of the passage, he takes the Antichrist, the beast, and the false prophet and casts them into the lake of fire forever. He brings about that peace that we see, and you can see how this fits with Psalm 2 as well, as well as, well as Isaiah 11 that we, just, that we looked at before. This is the king of kings and lord of lords. And so they were correct on the title, King of the Jews. And he was crucified with two, two criminals on his right and on his left, also insurrectionists. Some people, uh, some translations translate this robbers or thieves. Elestai in the Greek can mean a thief, but thieves were never punished by crucifixion. Crucifixion was only held for the worst of worst sins, specifically and especially insurrection against the Roman Empire. So more than likely, these guys, in fact, many scholars believe they were in cahoots with Barabbas. There they are, justly being crucified alongside the one who was unjustly crucified. Quite fascinating, Luke actually reveals that one of those two criminals at the very end puts his trust in Christ. He looks across him and he sees this person who's being crucified, who's been beaten, who's humiliated, who's just absolutely devastated. And something inside him says, he's the savior. And he surrenders to him as his Lord. Wow. Even before our, at our deathbed, we can pray to receive Christ. But once you die, that's it. But notice the forgiveness of God Jesus says back to him, you'll be with me in paradise. And then the last part, verses 29 through 32, we see the scoffers scoffing. Let me read that again. The scoffers scoffing. Those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, ha, the one who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself by coming down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests with the scribes were mocking him among themselves and saying, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him taunted him. So we see the scoffers scoffing. You think, what is a scoffer? What does it mean to scoff? Or mock, I think is how some translations put this. Psalm 1 tells us to make sure that we're not a part of that group of scoffers, scoffing. But I believe that 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 9, will reveal to us what a scoffer is. Look at this, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3. It says, above all, be aware of this. Scoffers will come in the last days, scoffing and following their own evil desires, saying, 
Where is his coming that he promised? Ever since our ancestors fell asleep, all things continue as they have been since the beginning of creation. We see this same kind of scoffing today. Oh, you say the end is near. They've been saying that for hundreds and thousands of years. It's been the same over always. And they forget. It says they deliberately overlook this. By the word of God, the heavens came into being long ago, and the earth was brought about from water and through water. Through these, the world of that time perished when it was flooded. They forgot. God already judged the world with the flood. So, of course, he's going to judge the world again. It says, by the same word, the present heavens and earth are stored up for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But he doesn't quit there. Dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. That's why he's waiting. He wants to give everyone an opportunity, and that's why we're reaching out to people. That's why we're going to invite them to Easter service so that they can come and hear the truth. We're going to reach out until Jesus comes back, and he's waiting, he says, because he's patient, and he doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone, now watch this, all to come to repentance. Notice he didn't say to faith or something like that. Because repentance and faith go together. No one can be saved apart from repentance. That's why it's being uh, pointed out here. Jesus made it clear in Matthew 24 that it's repentance that brings forgiveness of sins. We're hearing a gospel today that eliminates repentance. A gospel today that says, God loves everyone. If you just kind of believe this, you know, then you don't have to worry about anything. And we have whole churches that don't talk about Jesus dying on the cross to pay the penalty for their sins. They simply talk about, well, he you know, gave us a good example. And everybody, no matter what your lifestyle, you're going to get in. But Jesus in the Bible, God himself calls everyone to repentance. It's absolutely essential that we turn from our sins, place our faith in Jesus Christ, surrender to him as Lord. That's how we're truly saved. And here we see, but he's waiting, he's waiting, he's giving opportunity to everyone. So we have to present the gospel correctly as well. And so we see scoffers. The first set in verses 29 and 30, the passers-by, they're just mocking him. They bring up the false accusation, if you remember. Uh, you said you were going to destroy the temple. Well, he never said he was going to destroy the temple. He actually predicted that the temple would be destroyed. And they didn't believe that the temple would ever be destroyed. But it was. In 70 AD, the temple was destroyed. And so Jesus was correct in his prediction. They're mocking him here. They say, uh, you just you know, save yourself. 
By the way, it also appears that the temple will be rebuilt before the end, according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 through 4, perhaps the next thing on the calendar. And then the religious leaders mock him. They say, you saved others. Save yourself. Come down from the cross, and then we'll believe. They've got it backwards. Now, they said Jesus saved others. What were they talking about? They weren't talking about, oh, he got people to say a prayer and get saved. That's not what they were talking about, okay? They were actually talking about him healing people which is an indication that Jesus really did heal people. Even his enemies admitted that he healed people. And you say, well, how do you know that? In many of the passages in the Greek, when it says, and Jesus healed them, the word he uses is saved, and Jesus saved them. But we correctly translated healed because that's what he was talking about. So he's saved them from the tragedy of whatever illness they had. Okay, so he said, you saved others, save yourself. Come down from the cross. But what's absolutely amazing is that Jesus would ultimately save multitudes by staying on the cross. If he would have come down, nobody would have been saved. And they wouldn't have believed anyway. But he saved them. I want you to look at Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. And here we see uh, once again, an incredible passage of this lamb and what he accomplished for us, saving a multitude by staying on the cross and dying for our sins. It says, then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals. I also saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look in it. I wept and wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even to look in it. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the Messiah, the one that they, were, they knew was going to come and conquer. Look, the lion. But then, that's what he heard. Now look what he saw in verse 6. Then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb. Not a lion. Remember, he has to come first as the lamb, as the ultimate sacrifice. A slaughtered lamb, that word slaughtered is the word used for the sacrifices of the Old Testament. They were slaughtered as sacrifices. Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne. He's alive. <laughs> he's killed, but he's alive. So we see the crucifixion and the resurrection being portrayed here. And the four living creatures and among the elders, he had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. He went and took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne. And when he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and golden bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints and they sang a new song. They begin to worship Jesus because Jesus is God. 
You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. From every tribe and language and people and nation, you made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they will reign on the earth. By Jesus staying on the cross and dying for his sins, he provided forgiveness to bring about a church from every tribe, tongue, nation, language, color, you name it. This is God's plan, and he accomplished it by staying on the cross and dying for our sins. And three days later, we'll get to that when we get to Easter. Three days later, he rose again from the dead. So the Via Dolorosa was the way of suffering and the only way of salvation. If we choose any other path than Jesus, we will suffer eternally for our own sins. See the love of God in this incredible plan and what he went through for us. Embrace the truth of Christ as predicted with the evidence of the predictions fulfilled, the incredible miracles there in that regard, showing this really did happen. Choose to follow Jesus, and you will never regret it. Luke 9, 23, this is how Jesus called people. This is how Jesus presented the gospel. He says, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. He's calling us to the Via Dolorosa. Will you follow him? Let's pray. All we can say is thank you. You are simply, truly amazing. The way you wrote this book, the Bible, and you put it together in such a way that we could know, we could have this evidence, we could have this truth, but also that it reveals what you did for us. It's simply amazing. While we were yet sinners and enemies, you died for. While we were mocking you, you went through all of this because you loved us. Oh, how good you are. How amazing you are. We want to praise you now. We want to receive you now into our lives. If there's anyone here who doesn't know you personally, please, oh, Father, draw them to yourself. Let them see this great act of love they could be forgiven and follow Jesus.